welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Shooter, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 111, Five Reasons to Think Twice Before Taking an Antidepressant. A letter published in the BMJ, the journal formerly known as the British Medical Journal, in December 2023, calling on the UK government to commit to a reversal in the rate of prescribing of antidepressants, prompted me to update and republish the article which forms the basis of this podcast episode, an article which I originally wrote back in 2013. The BMJ letter was penned by 31 medical professionals, researchers, patient representatives and politicians, including two legends in the field of psychiatric reform, Dr James Davies and Dr Joanna Moncrief, whose work I have referred to in several previous articles and I've included links to those articles in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Among the many startling facts contained in the letter are these. Antidepressant prescriptions have almost doubled in England over the past 10 years. Almost 20% of the adult population of England is prescribed an antidepressant within a given year. Around half of patients taking an antidepressant are now classed as long-term users. Antidepressants have no clinically meaningful benefit beyond placebo for patients with mild to moderate depression. Only those with the most severe depression can expect to experience benefit. And despite this, the majority of UK patients who have been prescribed an antidepressant report only mild symptoms of depression. In fact, one study found that, quote, 58% of people taking antidepressants for more than two years fail to meet criteria for any psychiatric diagnosis, end quote. But here's the real kicker, quote, rising antidepressant prescribing is not associated with an improvement in mental health outcomes at the population level, which according to some measures have worsened as antidepressant prescribing has risen, end quote. I'm going to say that one more time just to help it sink in. Rising antidepressant prescribing is not associated with an improvement in mental health outcomes at the population level, which according to some measures have worsened as antidepressant prescribing has risen. Or to put it another way, as usage of antidepressants has dramatically increased, community mental health has declined. That doesn't prove that taking an antidepressant leads to worse mental health outcomes, of course. But if antidepressants were actually effective, you would at least expect to see some improvement in indicators of psychological well-being in communities with widespread use. The letter concludes with a call for other countries with high levels of antidepressant prescribing to also commit to lowering prescribing rates. Which countries should heed that call? It turns out that five countries are even heavier users of antidepressants than the UK, and I've included a graph in the post accompanying this podcast episode that illustrates this. The five countries with higher antidepressant drug consumption per thousand people than the UK are Iceland, Portugal, Canada, Australia, and Sweden. Australia's antidepressant bender. Australia has the dubious distinction of having the fourth highest rate of antidepressant consumption in the world. 32.7 million antidepressant prescriptions were dispensed in the 2021-22 financial year when the population was roughly 25.5 million. In 2021, up to 10.2% of Australian men and 17% of women took an antidepressant. Alarmingly, antidepressant prescriptions to young Australian females, those in the age groups 10 to 17 and 18 to 24 years, ticked up substantially in the first year of the manufactured COVID crisis, 
Once again, I've included a graph illustrating this very concerning and alarming uptick in prescription of antidepressants to young people in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Now with that background, let's move on to a short history of antidepressants. The class of drugs known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, brought about a revolution in the treatment of depression. Previous classes of antidepressants, such as monoamine oxidase inhibitors and tricyclics, had such severe side effects and were so easy to overdose on, either intentionally or accidentally, that they were reserved for severe cases of depression. The first SSRI to hit the market was zemelidine, marketed as Zelmid, which was released onto the European market by Astra Pharmaceuticals in 1981. Astra's triumph turned out to be short-lived. The new wonder drug was found to increase the risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a potentially life-threatening autoimmune disease, which affects the peripheral nerves, by a whopping 25-fold. Zemelidine was withdrawn from the market in 1983. One would think that Zemelidine's spectacular fall from grace would put other drug companies off the whole idea of developing drugs that manipulate serotonin levels. But the American pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly had observed the transient commercial success of Zemelidine and grasped the potential to turn the manifestation of human distress known as depression into a highly lucrative market. Lilly dusted off an SSRI compound that they had first synthesized in 1972 and shelved for lack of any commercial application. That compound was fluoxetine. You know it is Prozac, the first of the blockbuster SSRIs. Prozac was approved by the FDA in late 1987. Its meteoric rise unleashed a swarm of competitor drugs, including Zoloft, Paxil, Cipramil, Lexapro, Luvox, and Celexa. Despite the Zelmid fiasco, SSRIs were claimed to have such a low risk of causing side effects that they could safely be prescribed even in mild depression. The promise of better living through changing your brain chemistry proved enormously appealing to both the general public and to doctors. In fact, doctors began diagnosing depression in patients who would previously have been labelled nervous or anxious and prescribed a sedative such as Valium and instead prescribing an SSRI to correct the so-called chemical imbalance in their brains that, according to the drug companies, was the underlying cause of their malaise. But SSRIs are far from harmless feel-good pills, and the science behind their prescription is dubious at best. Here are five disturbing facts about SSRIs. Fact number one, there is no reliable science supporting the theory that depression is due to a biochemical imbalance and that SSRIs correct that imbalance. As shocking as it may seem, the entire scientific basis for prescribing SSRIs is built on quicksand. The notion put forward by the drug companies that make SSRIs and accepted as gospel truth by most GPs, psychiatrists and popular magazines is that depression is caused by low serotonin levels in the brain and that SSRIs, by raising serotonin levels, treat the depression at its biochemical root. But numerous researchers have pointed out that this is pure speculation, with no hard proof. David Healy, professor of psychiatry at Cardiff University and author of Let the Meat Prozac, devoted 10 years to studying serotonin levels and activity in depressed people. He found next to no evidence to support the idea that they had any abnormality in their serotonin metabolism. He describes the chemical imbalance theory as, quote, pure biobabble, which has replaced the psychobabble of the 60s and 70s, end quote. George Ashcroft, the psychiatrist who first advanced the serotonin theory of depression in the late 1950s, abandoned it due to lack of evidence by the 1970s. He wrote, 
Quote, what we believed was that 5-HIAA, that is serotonin levels, were probably a measure of functional activity of the systems and not a cause. It could just as well have been that people with depression had low activity in their system and that 5-HIAA was mirroring that, end quote. In other words, he realized that it was just as likely that our emotions caused changes in neurotransmitter levels as it was that neurotransmitters, such as serotonin, governed our emotions. Consider this. If you take aspirin for a fever and your body temperature drops, no doctor would argue that the fever was due to an aspirin deficiency. Likewise, the fact that SSRIs raise serotonin levels and that some people feel better when they take SSRIs does not prove that these patients had a deficiency of serotonin while they were depressed. In fact, as David Healy categorically states, quote, no abnormality of serotonin in depression has ever been demonstrated, end quote. Now, as I wrote in a previous article, Has Psychiatry Finally Reached Its Apocalypse Now Moment, the chemical imbalance theory of depression was finally, categorically consigned to the dustbin of history in 2022 when a comprehensive systematic umbrella review co-authored by Joanna Moncrief concluded that, quote, there is no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin, end quote. Fact number two, SSRIs are no more effective than placebo and their effect on severely depressed patients is clinically insignificant. Numerous studies have found that SSRI antidepressants don't relieve mild to moderate depression any better than placebo, that is, an inactive dummy pill, but it had long been thought that they offer significant benefits to severely depressed patients. However, even this benefit is increasingly being called into question. A 2008 meta-analysis combined data from all 47 clinical trials submitted to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, as a precondition for the licensing of four SSRI antidepressants, including unpublished trial data. And on that note, you should bear in mind that studies which show no effect have a tendency to be filed rather than being submitted for publication. Now, what the researchers found when they analyzed data from both the published and unpublished trials was that the response to placebo duplicated more than 80% of the improvement observed in those who were taking antidepressant drugs. When participants were differentiated based on the severity of their depression at the beginning of the trial, the researchers found, quote, virtually no difference in the improvement scores for drug and placebo in patients with moderate depression and only a small and clinically insignificant difference among patients with very severe depression, end quote. And that quote was from a paper called Initial Severity and Antidepressant Benefits, a meta-analysis of data submitted to the Food and Drug Administration. In those with very severe depression, the average difference between the effects of the drug and those of the placebo was 1.8 on the Hamilton Rating Scale of Depression, the HRSC. The UK National Institute for Health and Care Excellence specifies a three-point drug-to-placebo gap for clinical significance. In other words, if the difference between a treatment and a placebo is less than three points on the HRSC, the treatment is unlikely to make a genuine, palpable, positive difference in the daily life of depressed people. And as a side note, other researchers have found that a difference of three points on the HRSC is not even detectable by clinicians. A difference of seven points is required to correspond to a rating of minimal improvement. But even this tiny and clinically insignificant difference in response to placebo versus drug in very severely depressed patients was due more to the fact that such patients are less responsive to placebo than mildly to moderately depressed individuals than that they respond better to antidepressants. 
The authors concluded, quote, There is little reason to prescribe new generation antidepressant medications to any but the most severely depressed patients unless alternative treatments have been ineffective, end quote. Now, as an aside, my clinical experience is in line with the BMJ letter author's observation that most Brits who are prescribed antidepressants are either mildly depressed or not depressed at all. The vast majority of my clients who have been prescribed antidepressants would not meet the diagnostic criteria for even mild to moderate depression, let alone severe depression. One of my clients was even prescribed an SSRI when her dog died, just in case she had trouble coping. Those were the words the GP used. This type of knee-jerk prescribing is deeply irresponsible and utterly without scientific merit, especially with point three, which we'll get to in a minute, in mind. A systematic review with meta-analysis and trial sequential analysis published in 2017 included data from 131 randomized placebo-controlled trials enrolling a total of 27,422 participants. Their conclusion is sobering, quote, SSRIs did not have a clinically meaningful effect on depressive symptoms. Furthermore, SSRIs significantly increased the risk of both serious and non-serious adverse events, end quote. The authors go on to make these remarks, which I find quite chilling. Quote, we now believe that there is valid evidence for a public concern regarding the effects of SSRIs because antidepressants seem to do more harm than good. We have clearly shown that SSRIs significantly increase the risks of both serious and several non-serious adverse events. The observed harmful effects seem to outweigh the potential small beneficial clinical effects of SSRIs if they exist, end quote. And those quotes were from the paper called Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors versus Placebo in Patients with Major Depressive Disorder, a Systematic Review with Meta-Analysis and Trial Sequential Analysis. Now, let's take a closer look at some of those adverse effects. Point number three, SSRIs cause side effects that are indistinguishable from the symptoms of depression itself, as well as a host of other unpleasant side effects. The authors of that 2017 study, which I quoted from, present the adverse effects reported in clinical trials of SSRIs in terms of the number needed to harm, or the NNH. An NNH of 20 indicates that for every 20 people taking the drug, one will suffer the specific adverse effect. Here are some of the adverse effects reported followed by the NNH. Somnolence, that is excessive sleepiness, the number needed to harm, is 13. Remember that that means for every 13 people taking the drug, one will experience somnolence. Asthenia, which is a feeling of weakness, the number needed to harm or NNH there is 18. Fatigue, the NNH is 27. Insomnia, NNH is 19. Sexual dysfunction, the NNH is 11. Remember, once again, that means that for every 11 people taking an SSRI, one will suffer sexual dysfunction. Decreased libido, the NNH is 24. Nervousness, NNH 19. Agitation, NNH also 19. Tremor, NNH is 16. Nausea, the NNH is 9. Diarrhea, NNH is 19. Constipation, the NNH is 29. Dizziness, NNH is 33. Blurred or abnormal vision or dry eyes, the NNH is 37. Headache, NNH is 31. Lightheadedness or a faint feeling, the NNH is 19. Unpleasant taste, NNH 11. Depression aggravated, the NNH is 82. Chest discomfort, NNH is 21. Weight loss, NNH 34. And appetite decreased, NNH is 32. 
Now, bizarrely, many of these adverse effects are diagnostic criteria for depression itself. Prescribing a drug that frequently causes the symptoms of the condition for which it is prescribed seems just a tad illogical. The occurrence of sexual dysfunction in one out of every 11 people who take an SSRI, even in the tightly controlled environment of clinical trials, which recruit so-called perfect patients who aren't suffering from any other medical conditions at the time of enrollment, is quite frankly terrifying. SSRI-induced sexual dysfunction includes decreased sexual desire, decreased sexual excitement, diminished or delayed orgasm, and problems with erection and ejaculation. These symptoms may not resolve even after stopping the medication and have been reported by patients to have triggered relationship breakdown and impaired quality of life. Can you think of any crueler punishment to inflict on a person who is already struggling with depressed mood? Other serious adverse effects of SSRIs that were not detected in the clinical trials due to their short duration and relatively small number of subjects include an increased risk of bone fractures, violent and even homicidal behaviour, and premature death. And for more on that, you can see my previous articles, Antidepressants Increase Your Risk of Bone Fracture and Dying to Feel Better. Point number four, the diagnosis of depression is highly subjective. You may well not have depression at all. The term disease-mongering was coined by the journalist Lynn Payer to describe the process by which those who sell and deliver treatments, including drug companies and doctors, widen the diagnostic boundaries of illnesses or simply invent diseases to match the treatments they have developed and then market awareness of these diseases to the worried well. As David Healy points out, quote, Depression was all but unrecognized before the antidepressants. Only about 50 to 100 people per million were thought to suffer from what was then melancholia. Current estimates put that figure at 100,000 affected people per million. This is a thousand-fold increase, despite the availability of treatments supposed to cure this terrible affliction, end quote. And that quote was from David Healy's excellent book, Let Them Eat Prozac. The psychotherapist, writer, and former depression patient, Gary Greenberg, in his book Manufacturing Depression, humorously describes the diagnostic criteria for depression in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, which is the reference used by doctors and therapists to diagnose mental conditions, including depression, as the Chinese restaurant menu. Choose three symptoms from list A, one from list B, and two from list C, et voila, you have a diagnosis of depression. But all of these symptoms, such as depressed or irritable mood, diminished interest or loss of pleasure in activities one normally enjoys, sleep disturbance, fatigue, feelings of worthlessness, diminished ability to think or concentrate, indecisiveness, these are all experiences that any person is likely to have at various points throughout their life as they face challenges, setbacks, life changes, grief and loss. Our emotions are guidance systems for navigating life as a human, which is, quite simply, a messy and complicated business. Human psychological suffering is real. The, quote, increasing medicalization of normal human behavior, end quote, as psychiatrist and founder of the Black Dog Institute, Gordon Parker, describes it, is bogus. It's the apotheosis of disease-mongering. Point number five. Taking SSRI and SNRI antidepressants during pregnancy may harm your unborn baby and make him or her more prone to depression and anxiety in later life. SSRIs are frequently prescribed to pregnant women, particularly those with a history of postnatal depression or depression prior to becoming pregnant, because untreated depression in the mother is not only bad for her, but can also slow down her baby's growth. 
But a study of nearly 7,700 women found that the babies of women who used SSRIs during pregnancy had a two times greater reduction in head growth than babies of untreated depressed women, even though the women on SSRIs had less depressive symptoms. Furthermore, babies of women who took SSRIs were more than twice as likely to be born prematurely. Both retardation of head growth and premature birth have serious and potentially lifelong implications for the health and well-being of babies. Babies whose mothers took SSRIs during pregnancy have also been found to have abnormalities in two parts of the brain, known as the amygdala and insula, which are regions critical to emotional processing. Abnormalities in amygdala insular circuitry have been linked to a higher risk of developing anxiety and depression, especially as children enter puberty. And a case control study of 30,630 mothers of infants with birth defects and 11,478 control mothers found that the use of several types of antidepressants in early pregnancy increases the risk of a range of birth defects, including congenital heart defects, diaphragmatic hernia, and two neural tube defects, anencephaly and craniorachiscosis, that invariably result in the death of the baby, either in utero or soon after birth. Even after making statistical adjustments for potential confounders, including the mother's education level, ethnicity, smoking and alcohol consumption, and the severity of their depression, strong associations were found between the use of several different types of antidepressants and serious birth defects. For example, use of fluoxetine, marketed as Prozac or Sarafim, in early pregnancy, more than doubled the risk of coarctation of the aorta, a narrowing of the large blood vessel that carries oxygenated blood out of the heart, and raised the odds of esophageal atresia, that's failure of the food pipe to connect with the stomach, by 2.61 times. Citalopram, or Celexa, increased the odds of atrioventricular septal defect, commonly known as a hole in the heart, by 3.73 times, and diaphragmatic hernia by 5.11 times. Sertraline, or Zoloft, was associated with 2.72 times the odds of diaphragmatic hernia. Paroxetine, marketed as Paxil or Siroxat, increased the odds of anencephaly and craniorachiscosis by 3.43 times, gastroschisis, which is protrusion of the baby's intestines, and sometimes the stomach and liver outside the body through a hole beside the belly button by 2.11 times. Venlafaxine, or Effexor, was associated with the shocking 9.14 times the odds of anencephaly and craniorachiscosis. Again, these are serious neural tube defects that are incompatible with life. And finally, bupropion, marketed as Welbutrin or Zyban, increased the odds of diaphragmatic hernia by 6.5 times. It's hard to imagine a crueler punishment to inflict on a depressed woman than the death or serious illness of her baby. Pregnant women who are struggling with mental health conditions and their unborn babies deserve better than these ineffective and dangerous drugs. The bottom line, there are proven, safe and effective treatments for depressed mood that enhance your overall health and well-being. And unlike SSRIs and other antidepressants, which increase the risk of relapsing back into depression once it resolves, lifestyle medicine interventions such as physical activity, improved nutrition, and effective psychotherapy that equips people with emotional and cognitive coping skills decrease relapse rates. An important note, if you are currently taking antidepressants, you should not abruptly stop taking them, as a discontinuation or withdrawal syndrome may occur, which includes symptoms such as dizziness, electric shock-like sensations, sweating, nausea, insomnia, tremor, confusion, nightmares and vertigo, as well as a return of the depression symptoms. 
As described in my previous article and podcast episode, antidepressant discontinuation syndrome, an under-recognized and rapidly escalating problem, gradual withdrawal under the supervision of a knowledgeable doctor is required, and the drug taper should only be commenced after implementing the diet and lifestyle changes that I gave in that article. And finally, I put many hours into writing these posts and recording and editing podcast episodes. If you feel you're getting value from reading or listening to my work, please do consider a paid subscription, which you can sign up for at robintudor.substack.com. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.